on a verse, it's very, uh, very short verse um, that is often used when we're trying to help people understand that Jesus is one with God. And it's the verse that you see on the screen right now, John 10, 30, where Jesus said, I and the Father are one, okay? So <clears throat> what I wanna do is go back and read uh, to help us gain the context, all right? Jesus is still talking about um, using this metaphor of, of being the, the good shepherd and his followers uh, those that belong to God being his sheep, okay? Um, he, every time he spoke, there was controversy. There were those that believed in him and those that didn't. Verse 26 of John 10, he says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You're not a part of my flock, okay? My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one, all right? So um, we talked about the, the passage that I just read last week related to eternal security of the believer. The key is, are you a believer? If you're a believer, then you can count on the fact that God's got you, he's gonna protect you, and nobody and nothing can come at you, right? Um, it doesn't mean we're not gonna deal with adversity, but God's gonna protect us. Um, I remember, uh, you know, <clears throat> and it's becoming a more distant memory, I think, and not impacting us emotionally as it once did, but I remember uh, right after 9-11, um, sometimes I look at uh, numbers like that, uh, dates, uh, numbers on the clock and so forth as prompts to go through scripture and look up, look up verses, right? So Psalm 91.1, which is 9.11, right? Says, he who dwells in the shelter of the most high will rest in the shadow of the almighty. That's a pretty good 911 right there. And that's a, a psalm backing up what Jesus is saying here. Um, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Now, that doesn't mean they will never die. Okay, perish is that idea of eternal destruction. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So um, Jesus has this very unique relationship with the Father and uh, he likens that now, uh, or states it outright in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Well, he had already made an explicit claim to having eternal union with God, uh, God the Father, that is, at the end of chapter 8. Remember, chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. And they recognized immediately that he was using uh, a phrase that uh, equated to the name of God, Yahweh, which uh, is uh, a form of the Hebrew verb to be, right? The being, the eternal being. And when God introduced his uh, personal name to Moses, he said to tell the children of Israel that, uh, that uh, I am has sent you. Okay, and so that gets shortened to this 
this uh, four-letter word, yod He vav He, that we call the Tetragrammaton. We think it's pronounced Yahweh. Uh, along about the 16th century, German and English uh, translators of the Bible misunderstood vowel pointing and they uh, used the term Jehovah, okay? You know, and so I'm sure, you know, maybe you've heard a song. Have you heard that song, Jehovah Jireh? Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Okay, it's a great song. <laughs> it's a very good rendition. Thank you. His grace is sufficient for me, for me, for me. But that's not God's name, okay? Uh, it's probably pronounced Yahweh, but it's related to this, uh, this uh, I am, right, idea. Um. So at the end of chapter eight, Jesus said that, and they picked up stones to stone him. He was in the temple. The temple was under constant construction. Herod had been constructing the temple. Uh, well, going all the way back to Herod the Great had been constructing the temple for forty more than forty years, right? So there were there were always stones laying around, you know. And so they picked up stones to stone Jesus because they said, you know, it's blasphemy. He's equating himself with God. Um, at that time, Jesus slipped away from them, right? Um, and uh, then as he's leaving the temple, he encounters the man born blind. He heals that man. So he's still in the temple environs. It's, it's a big area, right? With lots of people moving around. Um, it's, you know, the temple area would be bigger than downtown Garland. Uh, so when you say the temple, you're not just talking about the temple building proper, and uh, so while he's still in that area, he begins this, this discussion about being the shepherd and uh, God's people being the sheep, right? Um, he continues that discussion on into uh, this period that we're at right now where he, it's likely that he returned to Galilee and then came back to Jerusalem. Not necessarily. We don't know where he was. But he's back in the temple area again, but now it's Hanukkah, right? And we talked about that already last week. And so now he's, he says, I and the Father are one. And once again, they become upset, right, about this. Well, why are they, they so upset? The entire book of John is intended to give us evidence, revelation, that Jesus is the unique son of God, not just a child of God, you know, we're all children of God and so forth, as people will often say, but that he has a unique relationship with God. The prologue begins, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And then we find out that the word is Jesus when in verse 14 of chapter one, still in the prologue, it says, and the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus, right? And then the prologue ends, verse 18, um, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has um, explained him, all right? Sometimes it's, it's uh, translated more like revelation, he has made him known, but the Greek word there, is the word that where uh, from whence we get the English word exegesis, which means to give the explanation of the text. Jesus gives ex explanation of God. That's what John's whole gospel is trying to say. It's in John eight fifty eight. Before Abraham was born, I am, and now ten thirty, uh, I and the Father are one. 
Okay. So here we see the underlying uh, principle of the concept Trinity. Now you're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible anywhere. It was a word that was coined Trinitas in Latin uh, by Tertullian in an effort to encapsulate, describe, define what we're talking about when we say that God is the Father and God is the Son and God is the Spirit. Okay. Um, there's a a beautiful passage that's found in the synoptics where when Jesus is baptized, so this is Jesus, the son being baptized by John the Baptist. He comes up out of the water. Okay. And John the Baptist, presumably uh, who knows who else? So definitely Jesus, definitely Jesus and John see the Holy spirit descending as a dove upon Jesus. This is Jesus. The son, the Holy spirit is descending as a dove and a voice from heaven, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There it is. There's the picture right there. The Son is the incarnate uh, Christ in the water, being baptized. The Holy Spirit is symbolically descending as a dove, and the Father is speaking from uh, heaven. Right? One God, three persons. That's this idea of Trinity. He expresses himself in these three persons. Um, so, where, the, where Christ is present, the Father is present. Where the Spirit is present, Christ is present, and so forth. Um, so when we say, I have Jesus in my heart, it's actually the Holy Spirit who brings Jesus into your heart, right? Um, when you open your life, you call on the name of the Lord to be saved, you uh, accept Christ as Savior, all of these terms that we use, you receive the Holy Spirit, just like at the end of John, we have seen, um, as I've gone through this on Sunday morning, um, John chapter 20, Jesus breathes on the disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. When you receive Christ, that's what you're doing. It's not just a mental exercise. I did mention this, and I think it's important to mention when I talked about the doubt of Thomas, that you do need to have a mental acceptance of Christ first, right? We've got we to clear away all of the clutter and traffic and, and doubt and disbelief in our minds before we'll let Christ come down into our heart, so to speak, right? The innermost part of us. Um, there's a heresy that is believed and promoted by a denomination known as the United Pentecostals. They're not alone, but uh, this denomination has been around since the Pentecostal movement started in the early 20th century. There's a United Pentecostal church uh, right up the road here, just off of um, Beltline. Um so, you know, Beltline turns into first and right there it turns. There's a pretty big church over there. That's a United Pentecostal church. Um, it's called the Jesus only movement. They deny the Trinity. They just say there's, there's just only Jesus. Well, then what happened to God when Jesus died on the cross? God died? He just died, right? There's a, there, there's a whole lot of... Um, nonsense to trying to simplify the Trinity. But people inevitably want to do that. They want to either, you know, they go too far in seeing God as, you know, being like three gods, 
or they go too far the other direction and say, well, we, you, we can't talk about that. It's just, it's, there's, there's just Jesus, right? Um, but that's, uh, that's a problem. It avoids the, pen, the paradox of Trinity, but uh, they might read this verse and misrepresent it as saying, see, God is just one. It's just Jesus, right? Um, this is an interesting statement from uh, Beasley Murray in the Word Biblical Commentary. He says, from earliest times, it has been observed that Jesus said, I and the Father are, and he uses the, the Greek preposition here, N, N, all right, are N. Sorry, it's not the preposition. It's the Greek number, one, hen, right? Um, I and the Father are hen, not heis, right? One in action, not in person. In other words, if they wanted to say that God the Father and Jesus were one and the same, then John would have used a different word in Greek. But he specifically used this word so that you would see that in the sense Jesus is speaking here, they are one in purpose. Um, on a number of occasions, other occasions, Jesus affirmed his unity with the Father in purpose and action. Um, listen to this from John five nineteen. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself by himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does in the same way. So they're one in purpose. Well, we could certainly do an entire study on this idea of Trinity, but uh, I wanted to spend a bit of time on uh, John 10, 30 by itself. So their response, once again, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. <clears throat> Jesus replied, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered, we're not stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Well, this is, again, the second time that listeners have been so offended and enraged that they picked up rocks to stone Jesus. Um, uh, the first time we've already mentioned was about two months earlier and it was also in the temple area, and it was because Jesus had said, as I mentioned, before Abraham was born, I am invoking God's name as his own. Well, I mean, if he wasn't really the son of God, then they would be justified in picking up stones to stone him for blasphemy. But see, there's that, that difficult, pernicious problem that they face, these amazing works that he has done, right? In John, the seven major miracles, um, he turned water into wine in chapter two, and we're about to hit chapter 11 where he's going to raise a man from the dead that's been dead for four days. Who does that? Who is able to do that? Jesus walked on water. He multiplied loaves and fish and, you know, fed 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children, 10 or 12,000 people. Who does that? The devil? No. This is the problem. It's like, you, you know, you, you've got to rework your thinking when you see things. Now, these weren't just miracles, right? I mean, the devil can do supernatural things because he's a supernatural being. If you remember in Exodus, um, when Moses first went back to Pharaoh's court after being away for 40 years and, you know, trying to get the people of Israel out of Egyptian slavery and he appears before Pharaoh, um, the, the first sign that Moses was given by God was to take the staff of, you know, the rod of God, the staff in his hand, throw it on the ground, and what happens to it? Becomes a snake on the ground. Wait a minute. 
But what happened? The sorcerers did it too. Yeah. These Egyptian, you know, demonic workers of, of miracles had staffs and they did the same thing. But then what happened? Moses, exactly. It's like, yeah, whatever, okay. But the first several signs that Moses performed, the first several plagues, um, the Egyptian magicians uh, were able to do the same thing, but they couldn't continue, right? Um, Satan is not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere, He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. We think of Satan as just being, you know, another God. He's not God. He's a created being. He's very powerful, right? And God has left him with his power for the time being. However, uh, you know, we're really off if we think, you know, it's going to be, you know, Jesus and Satan and they're going to have a big war at the end. And, you know, no, it's, if you look at what happens at the end, um, this is Revelation, and by the way, we'll get there on Sunday morning. It's my plan, and I think this will probably be the first of next year. Uh, we'll dive into Revelation on Sunday morning for a period of time. Um, I want to go through it. I'm going to do it the way that I have I've done John on Sunday morning. We're going to go scene by scene through Revelation rather than verse by verse. We may... Uh, and on Wednesday night, do what I'm doing now with the Gospel of John and go verse by verse. I just got to see how everything kind of coalesces and uh, see whether that's what the Lord wants and whether uh, the, you know, that aligns. I don't know how much longer we're going to be in John on Wednesday as I go verse by verse. I'm going kind of slow, aren't I? I mean, we finished John on Sunday morning. We're done. And we're still in 10 on Wednesday. We've got 11 more chapters to go, so it might be a little while. But nonetheless, we know the end of the devil, okay? You get to um, the uh, Revelation chapter 20, and God sends an angel. He doesn't even name the angel, right? This isn't Michael the archangel, the most powerful of my angels. will go down and fight the devil, and it's going to be a fight to the death. And No, he just sends one unnamed angel. He's like, uh, hey, you, yeah, you, way back there. Yep, yep, you, you, go down and bind the devil. And this unnamed angel comes down with a chain and binds the devil. Yeah, dude, if you're God's servant, that's all you need. If he, if he's got your back, you've got the power you need. Okay. Um, so yeah, Jesus isn't just some, uh, miracle worker, right? Some, uh, misinformed rabbi. Uh, he's the son of God. Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be nullified, are you saying of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Now, if you just looked at this passage in isolation from the rest of John, it would seem like Jesus is reinforcing the idea that a lot of people have, which is, well, we're all gods, you know, or we're all children of God, right? But he is actually quoting part of Psalm 82.6. The entire verse reads, 
I said, quote, you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High. So who is the psalmist speaking to? He's speaking to the children of Israel who God had adopted as his children, right? They were his unique, special people. And because of that unique, special relationship, the psalmist Uh, says you are God's little g. This is the idea that when we belong to God, we participate in the divine nature. Um, That's something that we find. uh, I was just uh, looking this up earlier um, in, uh, where did I write it? It's in uh, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. So, We are descendants of God, right? Um, God calls uh, Adam his son, right? Uh, In Luke, when we uh, go through the genealogy of Jesus in Luke, the genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. So-and-so is the son of so-and-so is the son of so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And it gets all the way back to Adam and it says, is Adam the son of God? Okay. So, in uh, Acts chapter 17, when Paul is talking to the Athenians on Mars Hill, and these are pagans, okay, um, you know, uh, they believe in other gods, and he quotes a pagan poet. Uh, This poet said, in him we live and move and have our being. And so Paul says, so you shouldn't think that God is like these statues that you're worshiping all over Athens, right? Um, And he says, we are, that is Paul says in Acts 17, we are descendants of God. Now, sometimes that is translated sons in the scripture, but it doesn't mean son in the same way. It's like a distant relative, okay? When we come to Jesus, we are adopted into God's family, right? Let's go all the way back to the prologue again, John 1, John 1, 12. To as many as received him, that is to as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to be what? Children of God, even to those who believed in his name. You get adopted into the family and are a son and a daughter of God. Now, by the way, we, we always go back and say daughter because we don't want the ladies to think that the scripture is patriarchal and leaving you out and so forth. The reality is sons had all the rights, okay? Um, I mean, we can go all the way back to, you know, the time of Moses and the daughters of Zelopehad who were daughters. There were not sons to inherit the property and they were given the rights to the property. So this wasn't the intention. It's just there's an order to things, right? And of course, then, you know, people abuse those things and, uh, you know, women are treated or were at various times uh, treated with less worth, less value and so forth. But what you need to understand is, the scripture, now in John 1, 12, what I just read, it says children of God, okay? But when it talks about uh, being sons or when the scripture says brothers, it includes the women. It's not leaving the women out, but it's including the women in an equal standing, okay? So I know you don't want to think of yourself as a brother, ladies, okay? But the reality is this is not a gender-oriented statement, right? It's relational. 
we're all brothers. And so, you know, in every modern translation now, we, we say, well, brothers and sisters, because, you know, there's just this uh, craziness that, you know, we have, to, we have to change everything and we have to make everything, you know, uh, agree with our culture and whatnot. But ladies, you are included as one of the brothers. And that's a good thing, right? And that's why the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 3.28, he said, in Christ, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female. Now, that's not promoting transgenderism or, you know, some kind of weirdness here. It's simply saying that in Christ, there is equal worth for everyone, okay? So, um, we get adopted as sons, all of us. We get adopted on, on this equal footing as his children. And then the divine image is restored in us. So, Go all the way back to Genesis chapter one, verse uh, twenty six and twenty seven, and it says that that uh, he created man once again. You think, okay, this is just the gender thing—a man, not woman. He created man in his image, male and female. He created them. He's including male and female in he created man in his image. Right, the image of God in us is broken by sin marred by sin, distorted by sin, and we are fallen away from God. That's the problem with the world, okay? There's a simple answer to why there's all this evil in the world, even though there's a good God. The simple answer is, this ain't heaven. This is a fallen world, right? God left the world uh, in our charge, and we turned away from God and we ceded control, C-E-D-E-D, -E -D, uh, to the, the one who lied, right? The devil, the, uh, Satan. And he manipulates and controls the governments of the world because people listen to his lies, right? When we're restored to God, right, as his children, then he allows us to participate in his divine nature. Listen to what it says, Back to where I was going to go a minute ago, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. For his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through these, through what? His glory and excellence. He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. So we even are privileged to participate in the divine nature when we put our faith in Christ, become his children, right? Or brothers with Christ, children of God. And when we begin to see the promises that God has offered us in scripture, we participate in some mysterious way in the divine nature. And this is what Jesus is talking about, okay? All right. Therefore, they were seeking again to arrest him and he eluded their grasp and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he stayed there. 
Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed him there. So if we go all the way back to the beginning um, of John's gospel, it says that John the Baptist was baptizing in a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now, uh, interpreters are not completely certain where this was, but it was likely in the region of Perea on the east side of the Jordan, right? And I think that it is quite significant that when they tried to stone Jesus a second time, that this is where he went. And that just like with John the Baptist, people were coming out to Jesus there and they were believing in him. Um, this uh, Bethany beyond the Jordan is probably about 12 or so, 12, maybe 15 miles um, from Jerusalem, probably closer to 12. And it is definitely by the Jordan River because John the Baptist was baptizing there. But it puts Jesus outside the immediate territorial control of those that are uh uh, the government officials in Judea. He confounded the Jews, right? Um, this time, the first time they picked up stones in the temple to stone him in chapter eight, um, it says he, he, he eluded their grasp. And I think I've mentioned this when I've talked to you about it before. Um, the Gospel of John movie, I think, does a pretty good job of showing how that could happen. Like the disciples are all standing around Jesus and he's teaching and they pick up stones and it's, it's authentic because, you know, there's construction material all around in the temple. They pick up stones to stone him and then Jesus just like fades into the disciples and then they kind of like, you know, can you, you can imagine Peter, right? Standing out there in front and got his arms folded, like, you ain't gonna touch my Lord, you know. And so, they, you know, they got their stones and he's, where's Jesus? And, and he just, you know, kind of fades away. This time, he just confounds them. Apparently, they just drop their rocks. It's like, they didn't, you know, it was like when the soldiers came, uh, you know, the temple police came to arrest Jesus, they were just like, uh, 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 no man ever spoke like this. And this is why at the end, they have to grab him at night, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, it just, he has too many people that are for him, all right? So it would cause a riot to arrest him in this way. But further, he's just an incredible person. Uh, you know, his words and his persona. In fact, this persona is so powerful, right? And it's going to be a while before we get to this, but um, I did not have a chance to address it on Sunday morning when we were in the passage where Jesus was arrested in the garden. But Judas is at the head of this rabble that is coming to arrest Jesus. They've got torches, they've got clubs, right? And they're coming into the garden to arrest Jesus, okay? And Jesus walks up to them and says, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know what he says? He says, I am. That's what he says. I am. Do you know what they do? They fall backward. They stand up. They walk forward again. Again, Jesus says, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. Again, they fall back, right? He says, I am, 
take me and let these go their way. And then, of course, you know, uh, chaos ensues where Peter picks up the sword and chops off Malchus's ear, probably trying to chop his head in two or whatever. Um, but the just the power of Jesus' presence, man, that's why they couldn't arrest him until he was ready. When he was ready, when he was ready to deliver himself up, then they could arrest him. But until then, there was nothing that they could do. Okay, so he was able to leave Jerusalem without being detected. Uh, he went to the east side of the Jordan. And um, just like people repented when they came to John the Baptist there, now we're full circle, right? We're almost to chapter 11, right? With uh, the Lazarus story, we've come full circle and Jesus is in that same place and people are going out to him. Listen to what it says again. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, what does that mean? John didn't do any miracles, but he was, again, he had that, that authority, that presence of a prophet. They knew John was a prophet. So when John preached repentance, they repented, right? But now, John, remember John's testimony was, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's testimony was, the one that I saw the Spirit descending, This, you know, the Lord told me that's the one, all right? So John pointed to Jesus, and now all of Jesus' signs that he has performed up to this point, and of course, John's gospel tells us that there were many other signs that Jesus did that are not written here. Yes, there are only seven written here. The synoptic gospels give us accounts of many of his other signs, right? But we're given seven major miracles here and they all point to the divinity of Jesus, right? So they say, uh, everything John said about this man was true and many believed in him there on this other side, uh, this Bethany beyond the Jordan, Okay. Um, now I know that I've gone a bit short this evening. Uh, I just don't want to get into John chapter 11 quite yet. Uh, what I will do is we will read the beginning of chapter 11 so you can see how these two connect and then we'll talk about it next week. So now Jesus is at Bethany beyond the Jordan. Okay. Um, we know it's Bethany beyond the Jordan because that is the place where John was baptizing at the beginning. But notice in the text, it doesn't say Bethany beyond the Jordan. It just says he went again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. That's because in the very next chapter, and again, there were no chapter and verse divisions originally, it says a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. So John doesn't mention it because it would get confusing, right? Because this is another Bethany. This is the Bethany that's about uh, two miles outside of Jerusalem. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not meant for death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Uh, verse five is a parenthetical, right? There are no parentheses in the original Greek. It's a kind of a translator trying to help you understand why it's here. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So it's saying, hey, 
What you're about to hear is not Jesus being hard-hearted. Jesus really did love these people. Verse 6. So when he heard, Jesus that is, that he, Lazarus, was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, after two days passed, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and yet you are going there again? Jesus replied, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks during the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Which doesn't seem to fit here, but Jesus is basically saying, I'm the light of the world. He's already told us that a couple of times, right? John 8, 12. I'm the light of the world. Follow me. You're not going to walk in darkness. Everything's going to be fine if you just follow me. Verse 11, this he said, and after this he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going so that, so that I may awaken him from sleep. Now, this is interesting because Lazarus had died. Uh, this idea of sleep as a metaphor for death for those that are in faith or in Christ carries on uh, among Christians. You see that throughout the New Testament, uh, in Paul's writing, it talks about those who have fallen asleep. They have fallen asleep in the Lord, right? Um, the idea here is that death is not permanent for the follower of Christ, okay? So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus died. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who was called Didymus, that means the twin, said to his fellow disciples, and this is doubting Thomas, one and the same, listen, and we judge Thomas harshly, but listen to what he, 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 Thomas is a lot like Peter, right? Let's also go so that we may die with him. And so then they head back to uh, Bethany, that is near Jerusalem. uh, And Jesus performs the greatest miracle arguably, in the scripture. I don't know. Feeding 5,000 people out of five loaves and two fish is pretty magnificent. Walking in water is magnificent. But when you raise somebody that's been dead for four days, buddy, that's... Mm, 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 mm. And it points to you know what Jesus said, and we'll look at it next week. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Put your faith in Jesus, and death will just be like sleep. Now, I'm not an advocate like some, uh, for instance, our uh, Seventh-day Adventist friends. uh, They have this idea of soul sleep, okay? When you die, you just sleep until the resurrection and then you're you're raised and so forth. Um, Your spirit, right, that immaterial part of you goes to be in the presence of Christ until that uh, resurrection day. but that's why we say things like rest in peace, right? And, you know, we, we, we want people to have that, that confidence that death is not a terror to those of us who've put our faith in Christ. So again, I know this evening was shorter, um, but I don't want to feel like I just have to fill up time. Uh, I wanted to, to talk about that material. And so uh, stick around, hang out, talk to each other and so forth. Uh, Those of you that have joined us online, thank you for joining us. And uh, we hope you'll join us on Sunday morning at 11. And next week, we'll talk about Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. God bless.